You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. Gavin, we're back again. Yes. You got anything cool for us today? For the story or in general? Well, either or. Uh, uh... No, I really put him on on the spot. No, there. I don't. I don't have anything um, in general really to talk about. So, so just the story, I guess. So, what what do you got for a story for us? Okay, today? so uh, so people, so now that we do this every two weeks instead of every week, like we did way back in the beginning, people are going to be stuck with us for a little bit here because I broke this up into a three part story. Oh. So, okay. so it's, they're they're individual. They they can stand on their own, but they but work they're in all system. they're all connected. Gotcha. So and that's kind of a cool little system. Yeah. Right? So it's a three part thing. There might even be a fourth part, but if there is, it we won't do it right away. We'll do it much later. And it's it's a three parter that I call dirty slots. Dirty slots. So we're talking about gambling, obviously. Not well, eh, kind of. Not really, but. Oh. All right. Well, okay. I guess take her away and we'll see what we end up with. All here. right. Dirty Slots, part <laughs> one. We're going to talk today about Sammy Taran. That could be Taran. No, but we're going to say Taran because that's the way that he seemed to uh, say it based on what I could tell. So Sam Taran was born in Russia. He came to the United States and he moved around for a little bit at first, but ultimately he settled in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And just to be clear, I know I told you this off the air, but so people who know, so people know at home, we're going to be talking a lot about Minneapolis St. Paul <laughs> in this three-parter. I promise you it has a Milwaukee connection. connection. <laughs> There's a reason for this, but it's going to be very Minnesota heavy for a little bit. Okay. All right. So already uh, as a young man, uh, Taryn's getting in trouble. Uh, Sammy's getting in trouble. He's He's... Busted for loitering outside a hotel, and then he doesn't like that he's busted for loitering, so he ends up pushing a police officer, which uh, he should not do. So he was given 15 days in jail for pushing uh, the police officer. Uh, he's already kind of a minor celebrity because he's a boxer, and he's known as the Fighting Tailor. Because apparently his day job was as a tailor. So he was the yeah, fighting... Nice! He was the Fighting <laughs> Tailor. Uh, he was trained by Mike Gibbons who was a middleweight champion of the world. Uh, So a really good boxer as his trainer. But he didn't stay out of trouble. Uh, Again, still as a young man, he is charged with car theft. He went to court. He was found not guilty. He had allegedly stolen a Buick Roadster, and the owner spotted the car in a garage while riding a trolley. Hopping off, hopping off the trolley, the man found receipts in the car proving it was his car. Taryn was fined $100 a few uh, weeks after that on a liquor law violation. So uh, that was kind of out of order the way I told that there. But this guy like could tell it was his car, and he was still found not guilty for taking it. <laughs> All right. A few days after the liquor law violation, three days later, both Sammy and his wife were sentenced to jail for receiving a stolen automobile. Not the same one. A different <laughs> stolen car. Uh, Their combined bond on that was $4,000. The bond was put up by a man named Louis Goldstein. Taryn was ultimately fined only $10 for this this crime. And he then ends up getting in trouble for assault and battery. He ends up beating up 
the man who had posted his bond. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't come up with the bond money fast enough or what? I don't know. <laughs> a little bit after this, he's again charged with car theft, tried and acquitted. So uh, has a has a real habit. Yeah, here. He, he just keeps going. Yeah. Finally, in 1923, he's now about 25 years old. Uh, he applies to become a U.S. citizen, but he is rejected because apparently it's hard to become a citizen when you've got a long record of car theft. <laughs> so uh, he did not become a citizen at that time, and as far as I can tell, he never did. So a little bit later, he gets during prohibition. He's again caught in possession of liquor. He then is he burglarizes a pharmacy. Which, for some reason, inside this pharmacy, there's 97 cases of whiskey valued <laughs> wow. at $85,000. So I'm guessing there was something suspicious going on. He knew about it, burglarized them, and stole their whiskey. So, I don't know. A couple weeks later, he's pulled over, and several of these cases of whiskey are found in his car. So that didn't go out very well for him. <laughs> so. Just an endless array of problems here, but he keeps end up getting off either completely free or very light. Uh, he's convicted of grand theft, sentenced to only 30 days in the Minneapolis jail. Uh, a distilling operation is then found in his home, and he's on trial. Mysteriously, the physical evidence against him disappears, so he's let go. Wow. How, how does this... I mean... We've talked about bad... Well, this guy seems like he's probably a bad criminal because he just keeps getting caught. Yeah. But it also seems like he's a really good criminal because he never gets... When he gets caught, he just gets a slap on the wrist and goes right back he to doing is, what he's doing. Yeah, very, very good at continuing to get caught and not <laughs> get in trouble for it. Do you know, like... So we're in the 60s right now, right? No. No? Well, on a timeline we are, but for this episode... Um, we're up to, this is going to take us up to the present, but I'm giving you this whole backstory. So right now we're in the 1920s and we're going forward. Okay. So like, do you know, like in the situations of like in the 1920s, did they really not have like today, if Mm -hmm. you keep getting in trouble and trouble, the, the penalties get more severe every time you get in trouble. Do you know, did they not have that in the twenties where, well, I think they did, but if he keeps getting found not guilty, then, oh, I, yeah, I suppose, then the penalties half these, don't grow. Yeah, I suppose half these things he's not even being found guilty. Yeah, but it was it was very common for things to go to trial and then they get tossed out or found not guilty. I don't know what the rate is in Minnesota, but I mean, there's been studies on like the rate in Chicago, for example, and... I think this is not true anymore today, but it used to be the case where like half the people didn't get convicted. Like it was very common to go to trial and and be acquitted, which in theory shouldn't happen because by the time you get to trial, they should have enough evidence, you know, Dude. that that to put you on trial. But but now how much of that has to do because doesn't Chicago have a long 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 line of government options? It does, which is why city? which is why the rate of acquittals is much higher in chicago than other places but even so i think there was a different time where it was more common a house that he owns is found with liquor inside of it the defense attorney says well he owned it but you know he didn't necessarily live there so he has no control over what people do it he's just a landlord the jury believed that story let him go for that one (laughs) uh at, at one point he's involved in what the newspaper called a hijacking fight where he's trying to steal liquor from another liquor gang 
Uh, he tried to steal it from a St. Paul apartment. Uh, he's shot and wounded at the time, so uh, that doesn't go so well for him. While he's already been shot, in fact, he's shot in the chest. Somehow, he survives being shot in the chest, and not only that, he's able to wrestle the gun away from the man who shot him and then beats them up. <laughs> With the gun? Yeah, he like pistol whips them. <laughs> he ends up fracturing the skull of one of his Holy attackers. Crap. Uh he's charged with assault in the second degree, put on trial and acquitted. It just never ends. Yeah. Uh the man who attacked him is then put on trial for assaulting him, which is weird that they both go on trial for attacking each other. But when that goes to trial, Sammy now can't remember the man attacked him. <laughs> they said, no, the, we didn't attack each other. It was this other guy. And the other guy is in the hospital from the attack. And when they go to arrest him, he jumps out the hospital window. And they can't find him. This is just the craziest story ever. Yeah. It's, all, it's very, very strange stuff. Uh, we're up to the 1930s. He's again tried on a charge of assault and battery and acquitted. Uh, he is indicted in 1934 for possession of stolen bonds, and he's also suspected of being connected to bank robberies in Nebraska and Kansas, but is never actually charged with something. I don't know. <laughs> he's finally, finally caught for tax violations, because again, that's what you <laughs> get people <laughs> for when you can't get for anything else. Uh, and he does get, get a year in a Minneapolis jail, so, so finally some decent time. <laughs> so all that... And he finally gets jail time because he cheated on his taxes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, but even while he's in the jail, there's rumors, not proven, but rumors that he's out on whatever the equivalent of the Huber Law was at that time. And he claimed that he had a job working from midnight to 6 a.m., but they were pretty sure he was just going home and sleeping. <laughs> so... I don't know. From here on out, he seems to live more of a law-abiding life. That right. long streak seems to slow down here. We're up to August 1941. The company Mayflower Distributing has its grand opening in St. Paul. Sammy is the company president. His top men are Herman Pastor, Jacob Nilva, and Morris Reusner. Herman Pastor had decided to go into business for himself. In 1937, he rented a small place, bought some uh, jukebox machines, had them everything ready to go, and then he ended up running out of money. So he had called up Sammy, Sammy Taran, who was his wife's uncle. Sammy ends up taking over the business. And so when Mayflower opens, it, it's Sammy's business, but his niece's husband, Herman Pastor, I mean, it's going to be confusing, I'm sorry, was kind of the one who got the ball rolling on. But Herman stays on. Uh, it becomes the manager. He gets $35 a week plus 15% of profits. $35 a week, I know, sounds terrible. But in the 40s, apparently, that's not bad. Yeah. A little background on these guys. So his top guys are Herman Pastor and Morris Reusner. Reusner, uh, at one point in time, was kidnapped, and they demanded $75,000 to have him released. Um, it was then suspected the kidnapping was fake, <laughs> because he was supposed to go to he was supposed to report to federal prison for prohibition problems, but of course you know he can't go to prison if he's been kidnapped. These guys are yeah. <laughs> they end up catching the guys who allegedly kidnapped him, and then 
along with finding the guys, they found $700,000 in stolen diamonds. Holy crap! One of the alleged kidnappers was a man named Mike Atoll, who later owned the El Dorado Club in the Flamingo in Las Vegas. That's what he did with the diamond money. Yeah, so there's that. Um, Herman Pastor, the other guy involved, um, had a background of one time being picked up in Milwaukee uh, for running a confidence game, being a con man. Um, and apparently he was using the name Herman Pastoro to so- sound more Italian. <laughs> At the time that he was arrested, two fingers on his right hand were bandaged. Don't know exactly why, but uh, ultimately those charges were dropped. He was then picked up a little bit later for grand theft. But that case was also dropped. So these are the guys he's got working for him. Yeah. And they all have the same system. For some reason, none of them can get thrown in jail. Yes. It's not possible. Yes. So Mayflower, their company, ends up getting the Wurlitzer distribution contract from Minnesota and the Dakotas. For people who do not know, uh, Wurlitzer was a major jukebox company. Uh, The general sales manager told the press, the general sales manager of Wurlitzer, I know a few firms so well-equipped to serve Wurlitzer music merchants. Mayflower understands the problems of operators and knows how to solve them. I'm sure that Sam Terran, Herman Pastor, and Morris Reusner will go all out to render a superior quality of service as Wurlitzer distributors. So high praise from these guys. So while they seemingly run a legitimate jukebox company, they're also being investigated for moving hijack liquor in and out of their warehouse space uh so they get some trouble for that and then they end up bringing it across state lines into idaho of all places from minnesota to idaho and they're doing this apparently to work around some of the tax stamp laws i don't know i don't know the details of how liquor is taxed but apparently they're bringing it to minnesota and then bringing it over to idaho from there to avoid whatever the normal way is you're supposed to do it interesting and the, the taxes on this must be high enough that it's worthwhile to, to run it that way. So, I don't know. <laughs> so they're doing that. They're heavily investigated for this, but don't ever seem to get in a lot of trouble for it. Of if course. I, if things aren't really proven or what. Um, by 1945, Herman Pastor buys out Sam Taran. Uh, so Herman Pastor, who wanted to start the business originally, now actually has the business. He takes over Mayflower Distributing. Taran then moves to Miami and starts his own jukebox business there. So, there's now two different businesses. You you did some massive searching for this. Oh, heck yeah. Cuz wow. Now we're going all the way down to Miami or is that are we just kind of ending that character? Uh, that he's in Miami. We'll see where this goes. Uh, we'll see where this goes. I'm giving up. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> so, um Alan Nilva, there was already a Jacob Nilva. Now there's an Alan Nilva. These are both brother-in-laws of Herman Pastor. Alan Nilva was an attorney. He suspended his private practice to become the full-time employee and attorney for Mayflower Distributing. Uh, I don't know why a jukebox company needs a full-time attorney, but well, apparently you're seeing they how do. many, how often these people are getting arrested, right? Yeah. Obviously, they need a full-time attorney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then also, but along with this. Uh, Herman Pastor branches out and gets involved in a lot of real estate. And we're not really going to talk about that in this episode, but later on, like, he ends up becoming a major real estate player in the Minneapolis area. He he owns, like, shopping centers like that. So um, the real estate business is probably 
really where the money ends up coming from. According to author Gus Russo, the Wurlitzer Company held a meeting in Minnesota in June 1947 for the purpose of dividing up territory. Many of those attending had mob ties. For example, Sam Tarrin was there, who was suspected of having mob ties. He ends up getting the Florida franchise, not surprisingly, because he lives in Miami now. Interestingly, during the meeting, he shared a cabin with Frank Garnett, who was the son-in-law of Chicago mobster Jake Guzik. Now, that doesn't none of this matters, but Jake Guzik was like a major mob guy under Al Capone. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the nickname Greasy Thumb um, because apparently his thumbs would get so greasy from counting all the money. So, very well-known mob figure. Uh, 1948, Sam Tarrant is granted the AMI franchise. AMI, another company and a kind of competitor to Wurlitzer. The AMI franchise for both Florida and Cuba. He opens a second office in Havana so he could oversee his Cuba operations. It grows to the point where he also ends up getting parts of Georgia and Puerto Rico. So he's he's doing pretty well, doing pretty good. April 1949, the FBI suspects that Herman Pastor is involved in an illegal lottery. Don't know where this comes from. So they put a mail cover on him. And a mail cover is when they contact a local post office and they ask the post office to make note of all the mail that comes and goes from the resident. They don't open it. They don't do anything like that. But they just make note of which addresses things are being sent to were sent. Uh, uh, do you know, can they still do this today? I'm pretty sure they can. Really? Yeah. It's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, because they're, they're, not, they're not actually opening it. They're just seeing what anybody could see. Mm-hmm. And really, there's nothing, they don't find anything very suspicious. Mostly what they find is letters going back and forth between uh, Herman Pastor and Sam Tarrant in Miami, which you would expect. And then correspondence back and forth between his multiple offices. Uh, at this point, Herman Pastor has also expanded to have a jukebox distribution office in Milwaukee. So there's look, there's some Milwaukee link there. So he lied. He didn't say we were going to have a Milwaukee tie until the later episodes. We got our first Milwaukee song. Okay. Okay. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Uh, Sam Tarrant tries to expand out of jukeboxes. Um and by November 1950, probably earlier, but that's what I know for sure, uh, he ends up purchasing a company called Treha Golf Clubs, which is a company that made affordable golf clubs. And the way they made them affordable was they had interchangeable heads on the golf clubs. So you only had one club and you just changed the head on all of them? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah, so the idea being, you know, instead of having a whole golf bag full of clubs, you only needed, you know, a couple shafts, and then you could just screw on the ones the that, proper head with it. the proper head. So you could sell them fairly cheap, and then people could play golf, because golf was kind of an expensive game, and it still is. So that was the way around that. Whether they were really good or not, I have no idea. But, mm-hmm. but they seem to do all right. Also in 1950, we know that on top of jukeboxes, they're now moving slot machines from Miami into Cuba. So we don't know how long they've been doing it, but definitely by 1950, they're not just distributing jukeboxes, they're distributing slot machines. Cuba actually intercepts them and tries to send them back. Cuba doesn't want the slot machine. So whoever their customers are sending them to, a lot of them get sent back. And the U.S. authorities stop them at the border because they're slot machines. But apparently 
they're set up in such a way that they're actually legal. And the person on the receiving end has to do some modification to make them illegal. illegal. So I don't know what that is. but they I, ha- wonder, I wonder if they had it modified that it would pay out money or something. So yeah. it technically was legal. Yeah. I the- think there's, this is, I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing this is similar to like how certain firearms can potentially be illegal. But if you sell them in pieces, mm-hmm. then you can rebuild them to the way that you're not supposed to. Uh, I'm guessing it's similar to that, where whatever right. they're shipping is legal, but once you get the parts or the modifications, then it goes back to being a slot machine. Right. I mean, I'm a little surprised that... Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I just... I would've... Have you forgotten the episodes where it was illegal to have pinball? Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, this this is back when gambling was a big deal. Yeah, I guess I just would have thought that machines weren't legal. It was active. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Just me being sorry. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, around 1953, I think I wasn't 100% on this date, a man running an illegal lottery in Tampa is shotgunned to death. While I don't think that the murder itself had any real connection to the rest of the story, when the police showed up, they found an envelope in the backseat of that man's car, and it had Sammy Terran's name on the envelope. <laughs> Inside of the envelope was a single dollar bill. Yeah, very weird. So... I don't know. So he was looked into a little bit for that. Like I, said, I don't think there's any real connection with, between him and the murder. But uh, police did find that Taryn was close with uh, a few uh, mobsters in the area, including a man named Joe Indelicato, who was known as Scooch, and Stefano Rendazzo. So those names mean nothing to me, but apparently they were known mob guys. In the, uh, he's Sam Taryn is now suspected of being involved in bankruptcy fraud. So he looks gets looked into for that. Um, long story short, nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, I go into that a little bit more in my notes, so that'll be online. But yeah, really, nothing happens there. They go in and they they like investigate all his paperwork. They think like he's scamming the whole golf club business he's doing, but apparently that is not the case, or at least he's done his paperwork good yeah, enough no. that it doesn't appear to be, <laughs> the, be case. the case. And gets away with it, huh? Yes. All right. So, finally to the last bit of this story, and that is in 1959, Congress has a massive series of hearings where they're looking into mob influence on various industries, including the jukebox industry. And there's just hearings. They travel around the country and have these. And one of the people they call is actually Sam Tarrant, which I won't really get into that because I find that his testimony is... Uh, not terribly helpful. Like, I was reading through it, and I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think you're giving them as much information as they want. So it wasn't terribly helpful, what he was telling them. But they did talk to uh, Milton Hammergren, who was the guy who worked for Wurlitzer and was getting them into the business way back in the day. Okay. So Hammergren says, for a while there... Wurlitzer was having trouble getting their jukeboxes into new territories. So they contacted their friend, Al Goldberg. Through Al Goldberg, Wurlitzer got connected to several mob guys around the country, including Jake Guzik in Chicago, the greasy thumb guy we mentioned, mm-hmm. Meyer Lansky in New York, who was a major, major figure in New York, and among many others throughout the country in each different region, they were looking for specifically mob-connected guys. So there were mob-connected guys getting into jukebox business all around the country, 
because Wurlitzer found them very useful. It turns out they were very good at getting people to switch to their brand of jukeboxes. <laughs> and 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 it's kind of funny because the Wurlitzer company freely admits that they knew that these guys were probably going to use intimidation tactics and possibly even threats, and they were okay with that up front. They, they knew that was a risk. But then what's interesting from there... There's a number of places, and this is not connected to Sammy Taran, but there's a number of places where it goes beyond that to actual violence of places getting bombed out. A couple guys get killed, um, specifically in one place in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, a jukebox distributor who is not with Wurlitzer ends up getting killed. Then his son takes over the business, and he ends up also getting killed. Wow. And so they asked, they asked the Wurlitzer guy about that, and he's like, we knew this was happening. Um, <laughs> we didn't agree to it. We didn't like it. Um, we realized it was a risk that, that getting these guys in could, could have that happen. So, yeah, we were aware of it, but we, by no means did we, did we say this was okay. So um, they ended up getting more than they bargained for getting the mob guys involved. Um, pretty much the mob guys really never got back out. I mean, as we'll, we'll run into time and time again, um, the jukebox industry and the other clean-operated industries very strongly mob-connected for decades. I, I'm really curious. So the, the fact of using violence mm -hmm. to get these jukeboxes into bars, I mean, is a single jukebox in a bar that that worth that kind of risk? Apparently. I mean... Right? Don't you have to question that? Like, like, how much can a jukebox really make in a yeah in a bar I, that that you're willing and and to blow up something for yeah? I mean, that's a lot of risk for a jukebox. Yeah, they, jukebox. they took it. They took it pretty seriously. But I think that's. I think if it was like one jukebox, it wouldn't be a big deal. But part of it is, you know, you get a jukebox route and you're going around and you're convincing all the bar owners, and then you've got a whole bunch of them and. And then um, you have this one lone Yeah. And then and then there's there's other things they did to like reinforce this. I know for sure in Chicago they would then they would like bootleg records. So they'd put those they'd already have the distributor, they have the distributorship or whatever. And then they'd bootleg records and they'd put them in the machines. So it's like, okay, we're already making a profit off the machine. Now we're going to make more profit because we're not actually paying for, for the, the records. Record, we're going to yeah. buy one record, make a bunch of copies of it, yeah. and, then, and then distribute them. Yeah, so that, like, they're always finding ways to cut the corners, and and it adds up. Like It sounds so silly. Like you say, like oh, like all that for a jukebox, but it adds up because you know when they by the time they go and start investigating this, I mean they're making millions off it. And I guess I also look at it like so if if they eliminate this other this competitor in Joliet, Illinois, mm -hmm. you know, and they make it a flashy like known thing where people are like, this is probably mob connected. Do you yeah. think anybody in Joliet, Illinois, is going to even dare to try and compete with? So you know, well, maybe that, the, that is part of it. Yeah. yeah, maybe the violence is isn't like we have this one one bar that won't go, so we're gonna go kill them. Well, they probably don't really view it as that. They're like, we'll make this a flashy kill because now all the other bar owners right. know if you right. don't put your jukebox into it, this might happen to you, and then everybody exactly just falls right. Exactly. Yeah, that's always a that's a that's always a, a tactic. Is it's you don't have to be violent if people think. 
you're you going be, to be or, violent. Yeah. 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 So I mean, already, like even even today, you know, the mafia is a shell of what it used to be. It's practically. But if you truly believe that the mafia has influence on something, you're less likely to mess with it. Right. Just because there's that risk. You know that what what the mafia do. Right. And that maybe these violent, yeah, these violent actions are just them certifying. Yeah. You know, do what we say or this is, you yeah. know. So, yeah, so this is, the story today is sort of like mob adjacent. This is a really weird thing um, that's like Minneapolis, St. Paul specific, where the, whatever you want to call it, the, their version of the mafia was always very dominantly Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I didn't specify that, but but Sam Taran, Herman Pastor, Morris Reusner, these these guys are all Jewish guys. They're Russian Jewish guys. Okay. And that's that's like how it was in Minneapolis St. Paul. It was always these Jewish gangs. There was very little as far as like the Sicilian mafia type stuff okay. in the Twin Cities. So like even though there's nobody well, there's very few people mentioned here that are like mob guys. That was the mob equivalent for Minneapolis. So inevitably, like, they probably ended up working with yeah, other men's right. stuff, like, because. Yeah. Do you know in, so in Minneapolis, did they just not have a big Sicilian move? Like, I think that's it. a large amount of people move from Sicily that would create the mob, Yeah, basically? I think that's it. I by no means know a whole lot about Minneapolis, but that's kind of my understanding is, you know, that's what they had. And... And you'll see that in other places too, like in in Chicago and New York, there were the Jewish gangs as well. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they worked hand in hand with. Apparently in Minnesota, just they had the Jewish community, but they didn't have the community for whatever reason. So they just became the player. Yeah. So can you give us a little synopsis on where this is going? Yes. So Sammy Taran, would I use him as a starting point? Because he's an interesting figure. He's not really the focus going forward. Parts two and three are both going to be Herman Pastor, um, his niece's husband. So Herman Pastor is really the focus here. This episode is just to kind of give the background of how Herman Pastor gets started into the jukebox and real estate business through through Sam Terran. We'll see it going forward. There's it, it switches more from jukeboxes to slot machines. And uh, and the violence will get ramped up as well. Uh, so yeah, it's a, hopefully people are people are on board for this because yeah, like this one, like it's the the murder rate is very low, but I find it interesting just the the way that these things get built up. I think it's a, you know what I find really funny this story. Hmm. This is the first story you've told in a long where there was just way too many. Like early on in this yeah. podcast, we had ones where it was like, wait, 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 who's who? And, yeah. And stuff. And this one really tri- tripped along that. There's too many characters right now playing in this Yeah, I agree. Story. I agree. But, and, I, and I make a point to try not to do that. But it's just at yeah. times you have to because if there's that many people involved, there's yeah. just that many people The only involved. thing you have to know about this is, is there's Herman Pastor, there's Sam Taran, and then Morris Reusner is like the third guy who is, is not going to really come into play in the future, but just to know that this company is basically employing these major, you know, underworld figures. So To, to distribute. So any other names that came up are not really terribly important. And so so we they start out with, and well, circle back, like the other thing that's kind of interesting. So once they got into this distributing of the gaming systems, they kind of, I mean, their business really isn't clean. 
because it's all mafia tied and stuff. Right. But they're no longer really getting arrested for very much, right? Or did I miss all the... It, ar- it drops off a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's almost non-existent because at that point, it's like more white collar crime, crime type stuff. And and it's the way the jukebox business was set up and probably still is for all I know, is you, you get territories. Mm-hmm. So you have your own mini monopoly. You don't have to really engage mm-hmm. in a lot of stuff, you know? So you might try to expand your territory, and then there might be some friction there. But for the most part, like, if you've got all of Florida and Cuba, like, you're sitting good. Yeah. You don't have to get involved in a lot of crap. Right. So so it's not like, at that point, you don't have to fight other local people. Be like, oh, we got to get into this place. Like, no, dude, you've you've been given the (laughs) The entire state by the company. so. So cool. All right. Well, I think with that, we'll wrap this episode up. As always. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review. We do have a Patreon. Mm-hmm. We have new tiers in the Patreon that give away free books, free free podcast episodes. So if you want to be on a podcast episode, you can be on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And Gavin really, really needs your email. So Gavin, where can they email you, you at? I really need their email. Yeah, because oh we need questions. We man, do need questions for so, the Patreon. Yeah, so. always welcome questions, comments, and whatnot. So send those to MilwaukeeMafia at gmail dot com. Um, and you know, I'm not always on top of that, but you know, give me a few days and I'll get back to you. Yeah, and you'll your question will most definitely be featured very soon on the Patreon. Yes. So. As always, we really appreciate you tuning in, and we'll be back in two weeks with the second part of this episode. Dirty Slots Part 2. Dirty Slots Part 2. Part 2 is called Elmo Christensen. (laughs) Just so people know. People know. Don't miss it. If you want to Google Elmo Christensen, you'll see where the story's going. (laughs) All right. Thank you again, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.